Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. As always, I'm your host, Amanda G. So excited for this episode. We have an amazing guest, Denise Winkleman. Denise is a stand-up comedian, actress, fitness model, screenwriter, and former pro wrestler. Like, how cool is that? The wrestling world is so interesting and fascinating to me, and I love that she was a part of that. That was really amazing, and she talks all about it, and we get to hear about... What I love is it's it's characters, and it's fun. Like she said, it's silly and it's fun. And she was so happy to have been a part of that. You know, wrestling, it, it teaches you a lot. It teaches you discipline. It teaches you how to move your body. It teaches you how to be in a crowd, to perform. So it's really cool to see how that translated into later a stand-up career, into acting, into modeling, into screenwriting, into all these other things. So it was really exciting to talk to her. Also, stay tuned at the end of the episode. Denise was nice enough to share a clip of her stand-up, so we'll play that for you after the interview, um, after you get to know her a little bit, then see what she does on stage. It's awesome. I, uh, before we get into the episode, of course, as always, the announcements. We'd love to see you on social media. Queer to my heart on Twitter, near and queer to my heart on Instagram and Facebook, and maybe one day we'll learn how to use TikTok. <laughs> that day is not today, so connect with us in other ways. Uh, we have some merch at tpublic.com. TEEPublic.com. We're always having new designs, so come and check that out. And we'd love to chit chat with you for a little bit. I hope everyone's doing well. I feel like in the post COVID times, instead of saying, How are you? which is what I've you know talked about in previous episodes, I'm trying to find a new way to check in with people. I realize what you say is, What are you watching on Netflix? Apparently, that's how we're all connecting now, because there's all shows that we're watching and sharing and connecting in that way. So I guess. I'm told that's the new small talk, so I'm going to I'm gonna try that out. I tried before the Oscars to watch a bunch of the Oscar movies, and Minari was amazing. If you have a chance to check that out, I would highly recommend it. And if you want to fuck your life up, there's this short film on Netflix. It's 12 minutes. It'll fuck your life up. This 12 minutes will ruin you for a day. It's called If Anything Happens, I Love You. And I don't want to say anything about it other than get up. I'd say three boxes of tissues. It was intense, but it's good and therapeutic and something that I think, you know, we need to see. And it won the Oscar for Best Animated Short, so that doesn't motivate you. And if you already have Netflix, it's free. I don't know. The Oscars was weird. That was weird. I understand they had to make some changes because of COVID. Uh, They didn't have to change the order of things. There's a reason this is the 93rd Oscars and 92 out of 93 times. You know what they did last? Best Picture. Because you want to end it on a high note. Everything else, all the other awards lead up to what's best picture, what's overall best picture. This year they said, no, we're going to spice it up. So we'll do best picture, then we'll do best actress, 
then we'll do Best Actor. And that would have been fine and dandy, but Best Actor was Anthony Hopkins. Great. I didn't see The Father. I heard it's wonderful. He wasn't there. That's fine if he's not there. Okay, maybe you could pre-record a speech or do a live stream. No. Okay, well, maybe send somebody else in. No, it just ended. They just were like, Anthony Hopkins won. He's not here. Thank you. And then no closing number, no host to kind of riff. Lil Rel didn't even come back out. Glenn Close could have gone, gone and done the butt again. Something. No, they just ended it. So that was really weird. But I guess it makes sense with the past year that we've had uh, that that's what they're going to do. So I don't know if you saw the Oscars or saw the highlights. That's my version of them. <laughs> happy to be here. Happy to be talking to y'all. Love connecting with everybody. And, and thank you again for, for listening and spending your time with us. Because uh, our guests, and Denise did this, our guests just share so much with us. And they open up their hearts and their souls and their past. And they really open up their world to us. And I appreciate that so much. And I hope you all do too. So without further ado, doesn't that sound like the Oscars should have sounded like? Let's get to it. Let's get to Denise Winkleman. You are a stand-up comedian, writer, actress, model. Did I get all the things? Uh, you got all the things. Former pro wrestler, like a uh, uh, complete hussy. Like it's it, <laughs> it's all in there somewhere. Yeah, I was gonna get to a former former pro wrestler, complete hussy. We'll put a pin in that. We might uh, <laughs> we might need to have that in our wrap up at the end. Of course. I know you're in Los Angeles now, right? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I moved from Denver two weeks before the pandemic started. Oh. So I planned it out. I started stand-up three years ago in 2017, so three and a half right now. And uh, I started in Denver. I was fortunate enough to do several festivals during that time. Met some really great folks in L.A. Always wanted to move. Planned it out. And I moved it February 20th. And then three weeks later, everything shut down. So it has been a challenge so far. Was it... um... I guess, are you happy that you moved or are you like, if I knew what I knew now, I would have stayed and waited or are you like, now I'm in LA and that's the dream and the goal? Well, LA has definitely been the dream. It's weird because so many things are up in the air right now where, you know, a lot of comics have moved out of LA. A lot of actresses have moved out of LA because other places are filming. And so, so they really don't know what the entertainment industry is going to look like. Overall, I'm happy with the move. I'm disappointed that I really haven't been able to go out and explore or really make connections and really perform live, live stand-up and check out some of the amazing clubs in Los Angeles. But, but some things have worked out. Uh, being able to do Zoom shows and get to meet comics from kind of all over but a lot of comics in LA I do feel like I have better connections than when I started which is which is really fun so I'm originally from LA I left there when I was 18 and I have never moved back and I go back to visit at least before COVID and when I would do shows people would be like oh come back next month or you know when are you when you're gonna be here let me know when are you gonna live here you can let me know and so even just having that even just having that address is going to be huge when all of this uh, knock on wood and soon. Yes, yes, exactly. Let's hope it's not too long and it doesn't seem like it'll be that long. It's just like, I keep telling myself, it's just like getting through and, and, 
kind of powering through and it, it'll be good. So I, I'm excited. And some things have worked out. I mean, just having a lot of mutual friends, I, w- I was able to to get in at Flappers. So I, I passed at Flappers and I've been being booked regularly there. And that, that kind of led to uh, their helping with the Boston Comedy Festival this year. And because they had seen me and I had been in front of them, I was able to get accepted to Boston, which which uh, is kind of a big deal. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. It should be fun. Yeah, I've heard Boston's a good comedy, like a really good one where everybody, you know, there's certain festivals where you go there and you feel like it's summer camp. Yes. And you never know, like a lot of festivals claim that they're that they're going to have industry or they're going to have bookers. And uh, I had a fellow comic to, uh, tell the story that she did a festival in Iowa and the booker was the bartender and she went up twice in the same night to the same crowd. And it was like essentially a three day sh- showcase and that they just didn't have any clue what was going on. And so you never know what you're going to get. But I think these large, reputable festivals that draw kind of big names, you, you have a pretty good shot. And uh, what, what really led to that, when I auditioned at Flappers, the the booker there suggested I take a branding seminar, which was $25. And because the co-owner of Flappers, but she also helped out with this festival and, and helps as a college agent, was essentially the teacher. And she really encouraged us to apply to uh, Boston because there was going to be a lot of industry because it was via Zoom. So a lot of, you know, industry television folks, they, they were going to watch a lot of the shows. So I'm on pins and needles i'm excited for it so uh fingers crossed it it leads to something (laughs) yeah i mean it's an opportunity you know opportunities right now are few and far between and to have one with industry and with that kind of exposure that's great Yes, yes. Very, very, very excited because, you know, I watched something with Jerry Seinfeld. I think it was comedians in cars getting coffee. And he just said, you know, how are you going to get in front of people? Like, you have to figure out a way to get in front of people. And there are a lot of ways to do it, but like nobody is going to come knock on your door. Yeah. And that's the hard thing because we're all (laughs) stuck at home and trying to figure out what our creative spaces even are. And we still quote unquote, have it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I did my first live show at a park. Um, it was put on by the New Orleans downtown development people. So they made it as safe as you could be during COVID. It was uh, a limited, you got to sign up in advance. Only a certain amount of people could come. The chairs, they actually measured the space out. And then they had a safety ranger there that was enforcing masks and social distancing and, and everything like that. So it was all of us comics basically spent the first two minutes of our set just thanking everybody for being there and letting us talk in front of them. And the audience afterwards, literally 10 people came up to me out of like 40 and were like, thank you for doing this. We have had nothing. And I'm like, oh, the way to get people to see, you know, local comics was just to take it away from them. Yes, yes. Well, and and by the time this all comes back, like when this comes back, people are going to be be ex- so excited to come out and see anything live. It's it's going to blow up. I think. I'm trying to stay hopeful, and things like that are are keeping me hopeful. Where I'm like, you know, once this is over, I believe number one that it will be over at some point, and that once it is over things are going to be different, but in this like good, positive way where we appreciate the connection instead of being like, I could go to open mic comedy and go to free comedy show with locals anytime I want. And then now people, you know, haven't had that and and they can't go anytime they want. So hopefully there will be that that appreciation or at least 
10 people in an audience. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I, I think things, you're right. I think things are going to change, but I, I, I think it's going to all even out. So for one, like, you know, so many places are closing bars and restaurants. You're probably going to have, it, it's probably going to be a more limited uh, just as far as, uh, space and opportunity to get stage time, but but it's probably going to be a little higher quality at, at some points too, which can be good yeah. and uh, should, should be fun. And I, I think people are just going to be excited to see it. You know, and, and honestly, like if you've ever gone to a stadium, like a sporting event or, or a concert or anything like that, which I'm sure we all have, but it's like you're within such a tight space of all those people. Like maybe this gives us pause where we're wearing masks, uh, even after we get a vaccine and we're just like a little more socially distanced so we're not like just breathing all over each other all the time <laughs> yeah when i think about you know sometimes my mind like i go back into not even comedy just like hanging out and living my life i was like i probably did a lot of disgusting things that now with the covid mindset i'm like i shouldn't have touched that maybe i should have let that drink go if i didn't know what was going on with it like yes. you know so i do think people will be generally safer um those of us who believe that covid is real <laughs> yeah so half of us will be really safe and half of us are going to die of covid so. <laughs> yeah it's uh, i don't know i'm in louisiana right now so I can only imagine. I grew up, uh, so so the places I lived, I grew up in northern Minnesota, and uh, northern Minnesota is very, if you ever watch where Trump goes in Minnesota, it's always northern Minnesota, and that's where my family is. It's like within two hours of my family, so uh, they're the ones that believe that immigrants are coming to take their jobs and their farms and, and, and things like that. And then uh, I lived in uh, Cincinnati, so right on the border of Ohio and Kentucky. That's where I I was doing pro wrestling. I lived there for 10 years. And uh, those are very, very conservative kind of places. So they, they were much, they're much different than Denver and Los Angeles. So they've been good moves so far. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing too, is um, I think when a lot of people think Minnesota, they just think Mall of America. And then they just think Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's the same with Louisiana. Sometimes people are like, oh, New Orleans. And it's like, but there's a whole other state outside of New Orleans that is very, very different. Absolutely. Colorado is the same way outside of Denver and Boulder. It, it's a very country, very mountain. There's a lot of farmland. Uh, so whenever you get out of the kind of the big cities, then, then it kind of leans a little more conservative or blue collar. And it's not necessarily bad. So I, I grew up in a in an area that's really lakes country. There were lakes all over, a lot of resorts. A lot of people would travel from Minneapolis to go fishing in the summer or go hunting in the winter winter where they would go ice fishing in the winter. Uh, so the, literally, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with ice fishing, but December, January, all the lakes freeze over with big sheets of ice because it's like negative 30 below. And people drive their trucks onto the ice, put a little sh shack on there with a heater, cut a hole in it, and then then we'll fish that way. It is the craziest thing that I had no desire to do whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it on like, uh, there's a few commercials on television and in the media, but I've never uh, had the opportunity to do it. Do you trust the ice that much? Uh, it depends. So I've I've never ice fished. I've been in an ice fishing house one time. So normally it's pretty good. 
it's pretty good. Uh, when you get to a big, big lake, it's harder for it to freeze all the way through, or then it'll like warm up during the day and it kind of freezes at night where it's not as cold. So every year there are people that kind of fall through the ice because they will try to go out in March or February after it's been like 30, 35, 40 degrees and the ice just isn't thick enough. So usually it's stupid people that, that are, <laughs> are taking a chance. Uh, actually, one of my friends in high school, uh, they would snowmobile and they were going across the lake on a snowmobile and the ice started breaking apart and they ended up doing about like 10 or 15 feet just on water and they ended up getting back on the ice. But they were like, yeah, that was kind of crazy. We looked down, it was just open water. <laughs> oh my God. See, some people get a thrill out of that. <laughs> I get a panic attack out of that. You couldn't pay me enough to, to, to... <laughs> Why ice fishing? Is it like, are the fish better when they're like almost frozen? Is it the the thrill of it? Is it just there's, you know, nothing to do in winter? Like, I don't know how that came about and why that's so popular. Yeah, so so I th- so personally, I think it's uh, just rural areas. And in those areas, if you're going to live in northern Minnesota, where it's cold, the majority of the time, uh, I mean, you get like, June, July are pretty warm. The August is fairly warm and then it starts cooling down. But, you know, it's like mid-June to mid-August where you can actually go swimming and, and things like that. But it starts to cool down like right at the end of September and it will stay fairly cool in until June. And so so it's a long winter. So I think people are just looking for stuff to do. I mean, really, there's go to church or there's go to the bar there's not like a ton of sporting events outside of high school sports or college sports. And there's just not like a lot really going on if you're not outdoorsy. But yeah, it was fun. Like there's a reason I don't go back. I, I went back for Christmas a couple years ago and it was negative five for a high all week. And literally it was between going home for Christmas or going to Vegas. And and, and I was like, I, I chose the wrong one. Yeah, I was like, Vegas is whatever temperature Vegas decides it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, so so with me, I, um, I lived there my first 23 years, lived in northern Minnesota. My, my parents are still up there. If you look at the coldest place in the country from December, January, like that's typically about 10 minutes from where my parents live in, in Minnesota. They call it the icebox of the nation. So I grew up conservative Christian. Uh, my, my dad's an evangelical pastor in a small town, and it just didn't feel okay to be different. And uh, I knew I was trans from an early age, even though maybe I couldn't have verbalized it at that point. And uh, I just made a conscious choice to try to make it go away because it didn't feel like it was going to be okay. So I got really into basketball. I played a year at a small Christian school in basketball. And then I got into wrestling because pro wrestling was really hot at that time with The Rock and Stone Cold and Degeneration X. And all my guy friends were really into it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I learned that there were schools where you could go and learn to be a wrestler. And I did a bunch of research. I actually sent handwritten letters to a lot of these places or emails. And there were, I think there was one in Memphis, there was one in Cincinnati, there was one in LA, one in Boston. And the people in Cincinnati were really cool. And they gave me kind of the background who who had been produced out of there. And it seemed like kind of a cool, affordable place to learn. 
And so I, I picked up and moved across country when I was 23, and I did pro wrestling for five years. So so that was my break into the entertainment industry, where I always say, like, with comedy, you got to learn to fall on your face. And that was really my time where I learned to fall on my face and, like, fail <laughs> at a lot of stuff entertainment-wise. What was your uh, wrestling name? So this was before transition. So I wrestled as Dr. Melvin Winkleman which is like a mad scientist, which was absolutely horrible. Like I hated doing it at the time. What what really happened was, it's kind of hard to explain in that there were two wrestling promotions in Cincinnati where, where people started from. One place ha- had an old contract with WWE to train guys. It was the HWA. And they would get paid to train guys under WWE contract to get them ready for TV. And the NWF was kind of the alternative. So HWA was very athletic-based. The NWF, the Northern Wrestling Federation, they were more Southern style. They did a lot of shows in Northern Kentucky and they would produce really big crowds. And uh, it was very promo-based, very entertainment-based, very kind of, they'd have silly gimmicks and they would talk shit to the crowd. And like, it it was kind of fun in that standpoint. And they produced a lot of people uh, going in that had wrestled for Impact and wrestled for Japan. So what happened was my first day of wrestling school, I meet one of their big kind of trainees at the time, but he was, people could tell he was going to kind of be a big deal. Uh, He wrestles as Carl Anderson now and Carl Anderson became one of my really good friends. He always thought it was funny because I was somebody that had to work at being an athlete. I was very good promo-wise, like I could cut a really intense interview. I just thought it was fun. And uh, he he was like, hey, like, why don't you, just to pop the boy, it's like, will you do a, a promo as a mad scientist? And so I was like, okay, yeah, and I did. And for me, it was like, what do I really feel? It was almost like a, a bridge into acting where it's like, well, here's a guy in his basement that, you know, feels like he's an outcast for the world. And he's created like a, a potion where he's going to raise hell on these people. And so I tried to tap into those emotions and then just add silliness to it. And I did it too well where that became a thing and that became my gimmick for, for, for five years. And you can't can't find many clips so this was kind of this was oh three to 08. So it was kind of before YouTube really, really blew up. So there's not there's there's a few clips online, but there's not like tons and tons of clips. But some of the promos were really, really good. Some of the guys from that time who wrestled, one guy was John Moxley, who who did some shows with us, uh, who went on to be he wrestled as Dean Ambrose in WWE. Oh, yeah, I've heard that name. And he's in AEW now. He's AEW champion, which is on TNT. He was WWE champion, multiple-time tag champions. Carl Anderson co-founded the Bullet Club in Japan. He was in Japan for eight years or something ridiculous. He went to WWE with AJ Styles. He won the tag team championships twice. He's now moved on and he's in Impact. It, it was kind of cool to see everybody start off and then just a lot of people move up and do really cool things, which is kind of how I, I view comedy. It's it's kind of cool in the same way with comedy is to, to start something and then watch people move up and go on to do really cool stuff. But I grew up, my brother and my dad were huge wrestling 
folks and throughout my life for whatever reason I always end up with friends who are into wrestling I don't watch it regularly but I'll watch it if it's on and I I love it I know it's fake it's fake but there's so many real elements to it and once you click into that because it's like yeah the, the stuff you watch on tv is fake too but you're okay with that I don't know I like the community of it I always thought it's very cool to know that these guys are like pretty cool behind the scenes because they're doing the same stuff, but they go out and they just talk shit to each other. And like those realistic promos where they're just like talking shit or they're working together. Like, I love that. I did a promo on my old manager who she kind of had heat at the time because she'd left in a weird way. So she was a pretty blonde girl and she we brought her back as a big fat guy, just to kind of spite her. And uh, I, she was a friend of mine. And my boss at the time was like, go out there and cut a scathing promo. You know, like, you know, just do what you want to do, but just make it really good. So I did this promo and this promo was online where it was like, she worked at Skyline Chili in real life. And I threw in like all these inside shots about how you haven't had one bowl of Skyline Chili. You're super skinny. You've never looked sexier. You must be on the subway diet. Like like all this stuff. And I, I, I get to the back and people, all, all the guys were just like, oh my God, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> that sounds uh, a little different than stand-up. <laughs> it, it was very different, but there were still elements like physical comedy and, you know, you're taking a chance with the crowd and trying to get them to react to something. You also have the thing where they've just watched a complete wrestling show. So they've seen, and we've all been trained by the same person, so we all kind of do it the same way. And we all know the same moves and stuff. So it's like, how do you really get people to care and buy into a story or buy into... And react in the way you want them to so I, I think there are elements that that definitely helped when I started doing stand-up and were you a heel that's the bad guy right I did both um, I started as a heel uh, one of the first big storylines I did was somebody gave us like lab coats and potion bottles or, or the beakers or whatever and we put like Gatorade in it like so it was like a red potion then we put like Alka-Seltzer or something so it would like kind of fizz yeah and I think one of the first big big kind of feuds we had like I cut a scathing promo and then I snuck into the ring and poured potion in in a guy's eye and it blinded him (laughs) and so he had to wear an eye patch for like three months so it led to a big street fight a couple a couple months later where we just beat the fuck out of each other but um I was I was a heel and would get booed and like talk shit to the crowd over time if you do it and you do something well people start to cheer it so they eventually started to cheer us and then i think we turned heel again and then we you know so so there were long runs and long periods where we kind of did both how is i mean i always wonder for the heels because you're the bad guy everyone's yelling at you and i've been to wrestling matches because wwe loves new orleans they're here all the time so I, you know I've, I've been to them truly entertaining and when when the heels get up there, people in the audience are just screaming, "Go fuck yourself, fuck you!" Yes. Like they're so intense. And I'm always like, I know, I know you expect it as a heel. Is there still a part of you that's like, stop it? 
No, no, not at all. Like that feels really, really good. Like it feels really good when you got them like that, when you get them like really super invested into it. It's when they start cheering you because there are heel marks that that will, uh, whoever comes out as a bad guy will automatically cheer you. And you're like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, stop it. You know, and, and, uh, so the first actual wrestling show when I moved, it was literally, I moved on like a Thursday or a Friday. I, I meet all these like wrestlers and Carl Anderson, who, guy who became Carl Anderson, he wrestled as Chad Allegra at that time. He was like, no, hop in the car. We're going down to uh, Kentucky on Sunday. Uh, we're going to a town called Glensboro, Kentucky, which is in the middle of nowhere. And they do a wrestling show. So we hop in the car, like, they're like, yeah, yeah, you'll be security. Like, you'll just, you know, like, hang out. And so Glensboro, Kentucky, it's like you go off the main highway and it's like way off the highway and it starts to get right into the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And you're driving like on a two lane road. In my mind, it's like a dirt road, but I know it's not really a dirt road. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I'm picturing like no light. Like at night, it's just just your headlights. Exactly. It, it's like Ozark is really how it felt. Like you're driving in Ozark. And uh, all of a sudden, like there literally are people who are going to be at the wrestling show fishing in a creek that, that you pass by. And then you go and then all of a sudden there is one gas station that is a restaurant and a bar and a gas station. And they have a wrestling ring in the back. And so every Sunday night at this time, they would do a wrestling show and they would draw 200 people every night. Wow. The whole town. <laughs> the whole, the, well, not even the whole town, but people from the hills because there was nothing to go on. And so they would do, uh, they had a good guy door and a bad guy door. And if you came out the bad guy door, they would naturally boo the shit out of you. If you came out the good guy door, they would cheer you no matter what what happened. And this place was was crazy. But uh, so they sent me out to do security or whatever. And I'm like meeting the other wrestlers and stuff. And uh, an African-American guy came out the bad guy door. This is uh, in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. So I remember distinctly. So he got the shit booed out of him. I heard every racial slur you can possibly imagine. And there was a family, so a mom with a baby, maybe a 10-year-old kid and an 8-year-old daughter, so a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl. All of them were flipping the dude off. None of them had teeth. The mom was holding the baby's uh, middle finger. It was fuck you, racial slur, and all of them were saying that. So I got home that night, and I told my my parents, I, I called my mom, and I was just like, uh, yeah, everything we said about Kentucky was true. But so so it got so bad, uh, they were genuinely scared for that dude. So they decided to turn him into a good guy. And so like two weeks after that, as soon as he came out the good guy door, like people loved him. He could have ran for mayor. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Yeah, because that could have been a scary, a very scary situation. Yeah, and in those places, you 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 assume like wrestlers are going to help each other out, but like I've seen some of those southern boys like take it too far, and they got in, they got their ass kicked by like a big group of fans and and stuff. So you always want to be careful. Like in my mind, it was always like this is supposed to be fun, but like old school wrestling, like it was pretty common. Like uh, in the sixties and seventies, like they would not let anybody know it wasn't like a show and I heard heard about guys who would like there there was a guy named Freddie Blassie who he was like the first bad guy in Alabama um the first guy who did like kind of modern heel stuff 
and he came out and this is the 60s in Alabama and he said I side with the African Americans and all you white trash pieces of shit need to shut the fuck up and those guys like wanted to kill him like they had guns like he got stabbed it was uh yeah there was some crazy shit that went on there wow so i was gonna ask this question before i heard that story um but what was the so you did wrestling and you said oh three to oh eight about five years yep so what what was the decision to uh leave that life uh so there was a couple things one it wasn't really paying there wasn't like a ton of jobs at that point we were coming off like a really hot period in wrestling uh with the attitude area era and what happened was like there was a lot of promotions went out of business there wasn't a lot of places to make money there wasn't like a ton of tv you had to be really really either exceptionally talented or really really big like totally jacked to really make money. So that was part of it. But the other part was in my heart, I knew I was going to transition. Like I knew there was something different. So I ended up getting married and starting to work in finance. I used my college degree and it just became like a not, not a priority. And in a way I was really preparing to transition, which, you know, trying to do one last ditch effort not to transition. And, uh, it really became obvious that that I had to. So I I quit wrestling. I decided I was going to transition. I got a divorce, and then I moved to Denver, and that's when I transitioned. And after I fully got through what I wanted to from a transition standpoint, then I started looking for a creative outlet again, and that's when I started stand-up. Wow. So you went from wrestling 180 to finance and the married life, and then another 180, the stand-up in Colorado and, and the transition. It's It's been crazy. Like, the transition was very heartbreaking. Like, it was a, there was a marriage, and she didn't want to be involved in it. And, and then there was, like, I, I have to do this. And then it's a big deal, especially when you're trans, because you feel like you have to let people in, you know, especially when you're changing, you know, changing genders people are going to notice so like i had to start like coming out to like my wrestling friends and like my family and i uh one of the kentucky guys i i sat him down and he was a good dude but he he talked like it would say things like oh man damn dude and sat him down had, you know i was like hey i'm gonna change i'm gonna transition and uh, be a woman and he was like oh man i, I thought you were gonna tell me something serious like you had the herpes or you had HIV or something <laughs> like that ain't no big. <laughs> yeah. So they were actually pretty cool about it overall. What was really cool when I transitioned, I moved, I was working for a large finance company and I found out on my way to move, I was the first person with this company to ever openly transition. So they kind of, they put a lot of pressure on me in a way. And I was like, oh my God, I got to do this right. Like I, I have to, to make it good and, and make it make it work kind of thing. But there were some good, really good things that happened. So I went from, in Cincinnati, I was wor- working at a site that had about 6,000 people where it was really siloed, like you didn't really know a lot of people unless you worked directly with them. And when I moved to Denver, they were starting a new site and there was only 75 people on day one. 
So you were kind of forced to become friends with people you normally wouldn't be friends with. And because of that, I fell, fell in with this amazing group of just really diverse people. Like my core group of friends was like, there was a straight couple that were ex-Mormons from Utah and the 50-year-old director who was like a gay man that grew up in the club scene in Toronto and then moved to Albuquerque and then moved to Raleigh and then moved to to Denver and he was one of the glue pieces and he always wanted to go clubbing and and like goosey male strippers you know that dude took me to my first uh, peep show which which I can't believe I'm saying and and just like random stuff but like the and then you know like the pretty blonde girl who's bisexual and then there's all these other people that I met because of my time in Denver that really were super supportive and I don't think I would have got that if I would have stayed in Cincinnati yeah 100 percent. yeah when you have an office with 75 people you at least need to to know people's names <laughs> yes and by the time I left so I left in 2020 I I mean I had worked with the company for 12 years I had been in Denver for almost seven, and uh, they they had a thousand people that worked in that office at that point. Wow! So you were in at the ground <laughs> ground level. Ground level, but like st- the people I really talked to and hung out with, for the most part, had all started around that time. Had been with the company for a while, and it was kind of crazy. Like my first team, you know, in that new site was there was a, a straight guy from New Hampshire a straight girl from Boston, a family Christian guy from Texas, a family Mormon guy from Utah, and then like our our manager at that point, we were just like, we were like one of the top teams in the country. And we, we, you know, it was just like, you guys are going to be friends. Like, this is what it's going to be. I I think wrestling taught me this, but yeah, so I kind of live by the philosophy, have high aspirations, but low expectations, uh, which I I stole from from a colonel in the army. So if there's something you want to do, like set a goal, set a a stretch goal, and then just work really, really hard to achieve it. And uh, you'll never be disappointed. So if there's something I wanted or felt like would make me happy, like I've always been able to do that so it looks a little bit gypsy-ish if you look at my story with doing the wrestling in Cincinnati and then transition and then moving to Denver and doing that and then starting stand-up you know in between there I also I tried to come back after I transitioned to a wrestling place in Colorado and I was almost 40 years old and I was just like this hurts way too much they wanted me to be like China and it really wasn't wasn't what I was good at. Like I'm, I'm like a good talker. I'm a, I'm good at making other people look good. And it really wasn't what I wanted to do. So I was like, I really need this creative outlet. I've been told for a long time, like, oh yeah, you really should do stand up. So I wrote a set and there was a trans support group. And uh, I just said, hey, I'm thinking of doing stand up. I was telling somebody. And he said, well, we're doing a fundraiser. It's at the big nightclub tracks. We're expecting a huge crowd. You want to do eight minutes? And I was like, okay. So my first time ever doing a set in stand-up was eight minutes in front of 300 people. Wow. How was it? It's actually good. There were pieces that I used on showcases for a while, like, and then I'd go away and then I'd kind of bring them back and adjust it. But overall, it got a lot of laughs. I think if you look at what I did, like I paced a little too much. 
I was definitely nervous and like I shook the mic, but the overall material was decent and it gave me the confidence to kind of come back and keep doing it. Yeah. So when you go in, you're all in. Yes. Yeah. When I, and, <laughs> well, and I will say that probably of all the things I've done, writing has been pretty good. If I'm writing about something I'm familiar with and stand up is the other thing. So I kind of relay it to being like, in baseball or like football, a lot of times if you're a really, really good player, you're you're not like a really good coach because you can't really teach it. The good coaches usually have to work to be good at something. And uh, with wrestling, I definitely had to work at it. It took me a while to get pretty good at that. With basketball, I was the same way. Like I had to really work to be, be good. With stand-up, I was fairly natural, like as a writer and like with some of the material. And it was one of the kind of more natural things I've ever done. What changed with stand-up was when I moved to LA, I was like, this is really going to be it. I'm going to not be employed for a while. So I'm really going to put a lot of time and effort into this and really turn it into something because it's hard when you're working a full-time job Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's hard to be out till two in the morning and then try to get up at five in the morning to, to like go to work or, or whatever it is. And so that was the goal when I moved to LA pandemic kind of threw threw a wrench into that but once I got over like the second surge and like not really knowing people and that that kind of loneliness I started being booked on zoom showcases and places like with that fan and you know floppers and like Boston and, and some of these places getting to do some of these cool showcases it really put an emphasis where hey like I can I have to write every day like I have to find that creative space and just write and I just have to do it every time. And it's like for the first time in stand up, I'm really treating it like being a professional and it's just starting to to show signs that it might pay off at, at, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, that's what all of us, you know, said is like, oh, well, if I only had more time, if I only uh-huh. had more time and with the pandemic, they're like all your shows are canceled, yes. um, at least for the first few months. So here's the time. Take the time. Your friends aren't going anywhere. You're not going on vacation. And so, you know, some people were able to to use that time to really get creative in this way or in other ways. But yeah, really, we didn't have that excuse, I guess. At least for me, I didn't have the like, oh, I'm so busy. It's like, well, now you're not. So get to it. It also, I don't know for you, for me, when COVID happened, it made me really want to scrap all my old material and kind of start fresh versus I had been pretty consistently, you know, I was running a, a weekly show, two monthly shows, and then going to mics and other shows all the time that I always was like, I don't have time to, to really develop a whole new, uh, I develop new bits, but I didn't have time to like really put it together into like a, a longer set. And then when COVID happened, since a lot of my jokes, number one, became outdated right away, because those things weren't happening anymore so you couldn't really talk about it so I had the time I wasn't just going to shows and just had to do what I could I was like I can now take the time to to kind of develop this in a a new and a different way yeah absolutely it's for me I knew I wanted to write so what what was really going on with me was uh, I think there were two things so one was I was still writing on originally wrote a movie called The Authentic Step and I wrote it with my now roommate, who was my one of my friends I met doing stand-up and comedy, and it's a dramatic movie. And we were we brought in like another writer to help us with some of the structure stuff, and we kind of developed it together. And so we wrote it, and then we 
eventually adapted it into a television pilot. But when when COVID first started, we were just finishing that up and starting to enter that in festivals. And for me, like I start a project and then I, I get like obsessed with it. And I felt like that kind of took away from, from stand-up. But then also at the beginning of COVID, people were just trying to figure out the Zoom comedy. And we were all just hopeful that it was going to oh, this is going to be a month and then we're going to get back to doing shows. Mm-hmm. And, and so over time, like more more Zoom shows, more Zoom mics have become kind of a bigger deal. The second piece was I, I met Dat Fan and I mentioned him a couple of times, mm-hmm. but, but Dat started running a comedy club in essentially in his living room and he would book all these comics. And I've been fortunate enough to be booked fairly regularly with him you know, at least like once a week or, or a couple times a week or, and doing, you know, like even some speed round mics. And, you know, it's essentially for just for him to stay sharp. So that dude won Last Comic Standing. He's like a theater touring comic. And he's he's great. Like he's probably one of the most talented comics I've ever seen. And to be able to watch him do a set consistently has, for one, it, and, and it's like never the same set. So it really pushed me like, well, I can't just bring the same stuff to his shows, to his mics, like all the time. Like I really have to develop new material. And there have been some trials and errors and like trying to figure out like, what do I write about? So like I'm in the process now of just writing a lot about me in trance and societal stuff and like pieces about my life. But but that really pushed me. And I feel like over the last few months, it took me like almost over a plateau where it's like, you know, I probably came in with 20 minutes of material and you know now I, I have 20 new minutes that I would be very comfortable doing it that that I didn't have before COVID started and that's great that's fantastic <laughs> and I'm also like bad where it's like I do something something a couple times and I was like yeah that was fun like I want to go do something new and I, I you know like I'll, I'll write pages and notes and it's like okay how do I try this out how do you know like it's just like kind of figuring out your process and all that, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's next for you? What's coming up? I will touch on one thing real quick that I didn't mention in my story. So I did, like I said, like anything pops in my head, I really want to do it. And I wanted to build my social media. So in 2018, I did a lot of fitness models, modeling shoots. Uh, I was working out really hard. So like I, I entered all these kind of online branding contests and I did really well in the Maxim cover model search. I, I finished third in my group, so I didn't quite advance to like their semifinals, but like I, I had a very good showing and I have a lot of fitness modeling posts and stuff. Uh, so that was fun and I, I definitely enjoyed that. As far as what's next, so we are our pilot, we've entered into a no- number of competitions. Uh, we were a, a finalist in the Wiki Screenplay Awards. We were a semifinalist in the Big Apple Screenplay Awards or the Big Apple Film Fest. And we were a semifinalist in the Females Rock Film Fest. And we were a quarterfinalist in, in a Los Angeles International Screenplay Awards. So we've done really well and we've gotten a little bit of buzz. Like it seems to have some interest. So we're very hopeful that turns into something. We really want to shoot a teaser for that. So we're kind of collecting donations at this point to So I don't have to sell a kidney to, to film like a sizzle reel like teaser too. <laughs> <laughs> we got the bill of what it, what it was going to cost. And it was like $12,000. I was like, oh my God. 
back and that was bare bones so wow and we want to if we do it we want to do it right so like that that's one thing we're working on just doing stand-up so you can check my instagram at denise underscore winkleman w-i-n-k-e-l-m-a-n my twitter is at gypsy comic it'll have like all my upcoming shows all my upcoming dates but stand-up's going to be a big thing. And uh, yeah, those are the kind of the big projects right now. That's awesome. I'm so glad that, you know, during COVID, you've been able to not only stay creative, but, you know, stay focused. And it sounds like you have a lot to look forward to coming up. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, it definitely seems to be moving in the right direction. So we'll, we'll see what it turns into. But you just kind of keep throwing stuff against the wall and just work hard at it and hopefully somebody sees sees something it's been interesting it really has with uh, writing more trans material because i was always when i started i didn't talk about being trans partially because i was doing modeling but i was like when i first went out to la maybe two years ago at this point i did a festival and i came back and i was like i gotta be real like if i'm gonna be on stage i gotta be real so like my stuff right now is like very very real about being trans and societal stuff and it's really interesting like the response and how how you know i could even see it turning into like a one-woman show or something like that so it's kind of interesting to see where it all goes my parents are my harshest critics but also i'm thankful that they still like listen to my stuff and they'll share my posts and but he always says he says that sometimes my comedy is i'm too scared like, cause I, you know, especially when you're playing at like bars and just in random spaces, you know, I don't have my own crowd, you know, people aren't buying tickets to see me in a the 3000, you know, seat theater. So, so I'm playing at whoever's there. And so I do get a little scared about, you know, uh, taking a political stance about, you know, I do talk about being queer and being Jewish, um, but I do it in a very like lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. And I've actually written some stuff that I did at that one, my one show at eight months where I've been able to go a little deeper and it, it you're going to have better comedy that way because you're getting to the root of who you are and, you, and you're not scared and the audience can feel that. And that's what they're going to connect with on a human level. I, absolutely. And, and I think it just sets you apart. Like when I first started doing comedy, like a lot of my first bits were about working in a corporate job and being single where everybody else was married. And there were some funny comments, like it, people thought it was funny, but they didn't know the real me. So like just bringing them along and, you know, being trans and like, you know, I, I talk a lot about how I, I pick on straight guys a little bit, but I try to do it in a fun way. And just because I have that interesting perspective where I pretended to be a straight guy for a long time, and I feel like I know too much. So I try to take people along for those rides. But if you want people to really relate to you and connect to you, being real and it's weird to do it at open mics in front of strangers that have no idea but who are just Mm -hmm. other comments the thing i get now and it'll be stuff i've just written but it'll be about being trans and like i've been doing like flappers open mics uh just uh just to do as many sets as i can and uh you know i'll have comics be like why i don't know how i can follow that (laughs) you know you know (laughs) and um It's kind of interesting from that experience. Actually, the best compliment where where it made me stick to it and decide to write more. Uh, I did a show in Denver. I met a guy at the comedy store in San Diego. I had been booked at a guest spot and I came back 
and they booked a show in Denver and it was a very small crowd. It wasn't promote. They didn't promote it, but it was three headline guys and uh, like maybe 20 people in the crowd kind of thing. And I got up and the comics had no idea I was trans. And I just started talking about being trans and doing my set and doing my stuff. And I got done and they were like, okay, so we had to change the order because only one of us could follow you. And they were like, that was fucking real. And like, like nobody, nobody is that real on stage or whatever. So it, it felt kind of good. Yeah, no, that should, that should feel great. Queer visibility is, is so important because you're not only telling your story and putting yourself out there, but there could be someone in the audience that like you're going to change their life, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. It's uh, I, I have two quick, quick things about that. When, when I, I did a show in Denver where I did that and a lady came up to me after and said her, her son was going to transition to female and was very grateful that I was so open on stage and I actually just had another comic uh just a few weeks ago uh, I was on a show with message me and tell me after that um because I was so open that it gave them the courage to they decided to transition uh because of that so you just never know who's listening and you know if you're in a conservative area or anything like that if you're open and you're real like you just never know how that's going to affect people and and what impact you could have on them yes a hundred percent and that's how we're going to end the podcast because i always want to end it on a high note and those two things are amazing high notes and i think that is a, a good point we'll leave it positive we'll leave it with a high strong note going forward and hope for the future because that's what we're hanging on to right now awesome thank you so much for having me this has been been a blast yes thank you so much for doing the podcast absolutely absolutely uh talk to you later <laughs> all right please let me walk to the stage contestant and denise wiggleman everybody let me go So just so you know, if I advance tonight, I'm definitely going to celebrate by going to Disneyland. (laughs) And I'm either going to celebrate by starting a big-ass fight at the food court, or I'm going to have an orgy with Chippendale, one of the two. (laughs) Probably both. And a bit about me, I am transgender, I am divorced, and I am bisexual. So if you ask my parents, I've officially won the award for the biggest disappointment in the family. (laughs) Now it's actually a tie between me and cousin Jimmy, and Jimmy had a special relationship with some ghosts. (laughs) My parents just refer to him as the (laughs) go-fucker. And if you throw the fact that my parents are hardcore evangelical Christians, and are from a very small town in Minnesota, our family reunions resemble an episode of the Jerry Springer Show. (laughs) It's like, Aunt Betty is sleeping with Cousin Ned, and Denise is now a woman, so fuck her. (laughs) And my my parents are at a weird age. My my dad, I, I get these weird text messages from my dad all the time. I got one last week that just said, bad news. I click on it, I start freaking out. It says, I have shingles, 
and my eye is swollen shut. <laughs> my response was, oh my god, that sounds horrible. I'm not sure what that is, but you should really stop letting guys finish in your face. <laughs> <laughs> I've received a lot of weird e-bites to his local prayer group. His entire church has some concerns about me. <laughs> and I'm going to say a word that's kind of looked down upon in our community. Uh, I am bisexual. <laughs> is anyone else here bi? This is a comedy show in Denver. I feel like by just showing up tonight, that makes you a little bi-curious, right? <laughs> like, you might not be a 10 out of 10, but I bet you if you have a few more drinks, you might be a 2 or a 3. <laughs> just play with your friend's balls and see what happens. <laughs> it's okay, I won't pick on you, but... If you give me the wink, we can play dress up after the show. I'll help you set up a grinder account, I promise. And when I say I'm bi, I am 99% in the girls, but every now and then there is a hot guy with a ripped up tummy that walks by and I'm just like, how you doing? Shh, don't talk, dude. We have something special. It's only good if you don't talk. I don't want to hear your nonsense about craft beer and sports. I want you to dominate me. I want you to take me. I want you to dominate me harder than Donald Trump dominates the entire Republican Party. Just lie to me and then make me your bitch. Teams. I, I mean, unless the guy was like Bradley Cooper from The Star Is Born. Maybe you know what I'm talking about because he's pretty and he has problems. He's an alcoholic, so I wouldn't have, he would pass out a lot and I wouldn't have to touch him much. That to me And a lot of people think Danny Norman is great. It's perfect. And it is. I love it. But it isn't unicorns and rainbows. It's not the best thing in the world. I was recently with a beautiful woman, and I knew immediately by how she smelled and tasted exactly what she had for dinner. And it was spaghettios. It was the most disgustingly erotic experience of my life. I would have at least bought her dinner first. I feel like Taco Bell would have been appropriate. I made the mistake of telling some people I work with about that, about that story, and now every time they see me, they ask me what I had for dinner the night before as they sing the Chef Boyardee theme song. They've also left a, a bunch of cases of SpaghettiOs on my desk, so on the plus side, I really haven't had to buy dinner in my two years. Thank you to Denise Winkleman for sharing her world with you. Special thank you to Ryan Golub for creating our awesome, awesome theme music. 
Check us out on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Near and Queer to My Heart, on Twitter at Queer to My Heart. We have merch at TeePublic, T-E-E-Public.com. We have a supporter page. Check our liner notes out or our website. You can click there and just give us a direct donation. We pay for web space. We try to do what we can to have the best equipment, to have the best sound, to have all the social media stuff and be out there for you and be representing the community. So check us out. Support us. We love you. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.